Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 2, The Candyman. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. The Candyman, a.k.a. Dean Coral, also known as Houston's mass murderer, stalked young boys in Houston and surrounding suburbs from 1970 to 1973, along with two teenage accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks. Elmer Wayne Henley would put a stop to Coral's reign of terror, by killing him with his own gun. Season 2, The Candyman, Episode 3, Who Was the Candyman? So, Dean Arnold Coral was born on December 24th, 1939. He was the son of Arnold Coral and Mary Robertson in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Although the marriage was not a happy one, the couple tended to fight and divorced in 1946. Dean's father, Arnold, was the disciplinarian for the family and could be tough, but historical accounts say he was not an abusive parent. His parents reconciled and married again in 1950, and the family moved to Pasadena, Texas, but they divorced in 1953. Around that same time, Dean contacts rheumatoid, I'm sorry, rheumatic fever that caused a heart damage and doctors advised him to avoid PE or physical education, I guess is PE. Any for, kind of physical activities probably. So, but so for us that don't know what exactly is the rheumatic fever. So rheumatic fever is um, basically if you get strep throat or scarlet fever, I think the scarlet fever was big at the time um, and it progressed it could progress into rheumatic fever. And then what would happen is you'd cause some heart damage, some swelling of the arteries and um, some um, damage to the heart. So back then their advice was physical activity could cause an exertion and, and people could die. Okay. So um, after the divorce, Mary remarried a sa salesman named Jake West. West was a traveling salesman who sold clocks. I always found this interesting because <laughs> going door to door and selling clocks back then, that's... I mean, I, when I was reading that, I was like, is it like cuckoo clocks, alarm <laughs> clocks? Like, what kind of clocks are these? I think, you know, when you think of a clock salesman back then, he probably would have come with a few salesman samples, like what you're talking about, like cuckoo clocks and other types of clocks, and then would have had a book of, of more clocks that you you could use but back then a clock would have been very important to people and nowadays you know they're on our cell phones and everything else that we own so it's just can you imagine somebody knocking at your door nowadays and being like would you like to purchase a clock <laughs> i can't i mean i actually didn't know that was a thing so, so actually back then a lot of things were door to door so all sorts of different things that you could get for your home radios uh television sets um i actually knew a person who um sold washers washing machines she would go door to door selling washing machines so i i did something similar but it was uh like knife sets it's exactly you know? like knife sets yeah <laughs> So, so the family, once she married Jake West, the family actually moved to Vidor, Texas. Uh, Mary and Jake West had a daughter named Joyce in 1955. And um, so Joyce joins the family of uh, Dean, his mother, and there was a brother too. So he had one brother who was younger than him from the first marriage. 
Mary operated a small candy store out of her garage and Dean helped with the store. West would actually take the candy with him on the sales route and sell it along the way too. Here's a clock and some pecan candies. <laughs> While in Vidmore, Dean attended Vidmore High School from 1954 to 1958. At the time of his death, when interviewed, many of his friends from high school talked about not even knowing he was a homosexual. In high school, they said he was a very likable guy, not the most popular guy. He even dated girls and that he played the trombone in band. After high school, the entire family moved to the Heights area in Houston. And so we talked a little bit about the Heights area. So the Heights area borders Pasadena and Houston area. So it's kind of, it's an area that is encompassed in Houston and in Pasadena. Right. So they opened a new candy store, this one called the Pecan Prince. In 1960 to 1962, Dean uh, moved to Indiana to help out a recently maternal recently widowed maternal grandmother while there he had a serious relationship with a young woman that uh, relationship with that young woman most people believed was headed toward marriage but instead he decided to return to houston and help run the candy store one thing that a lot of people would say about dean is that he would never have said no to his mother and i in some of that, I'm wondering if that's a reference to the fact that his mother was kind of calling him back to run the candy store, or if it's more him wanting to leave to run that candy store, kind of leaving that relationship behind. But the relationship kind of ends with him going back to Houston. Right. And I mean, I guess, too, they might be saying that in reference to, like, his character of, like, maybe he respects women, you know, respects right. his mother so much that, you know, he's like that gentle person that would never want to disappoint her. Right. And if she needed help, he's going to go help her. Mm -hmm. And right about the same time, what's happening too, is that Dean's mother actually gets another divorce. And so she's divorcing. And so that may be part of it. She divorces in 1963. So she might be also calling him home to, to help her. Right. So a few months after the divorce, Dean mom, Dean's mom opens a new candy store. This one called Coral Candy Company. Dean was named as the vice named as the vice president. During this time, he lived in an apartment over the candy store. People always talked about how Dean always wore white. People said he was quiet, polite, punctual. He was always neat and put together. Everyone talked about how much he loved children. One state friend stated that Dean had all the virtues of a Boy Scout. One relative stated that he was almost too good. You know, and I guess now us knowing what we know about him and the fact that children just kind of flock to him, it does, it just red flags to me. But they didn't know that then. No, I think, I think that, you know, I mean, when we're looking back on this, that's always the thing where you're looking back on that and saying to yourself, well, you know, here's this guy who had relationships who did not work out. Here's this individual that, you know, had really lots of relationships with children who were too young to be having a friendship with an adult male. You know, yeah, it gives us red flags now, but it, back then I don't know that it would have. I think they would have think, thought of him more as a mentor. Oh, to sure. those kids. I mean, and then of course, you know, with how 
they speak about his character, they didn't think anything about it. No, you know, no. one of his high school friends said he was the type of guy who like, if he was banging on your door in the middle of the night, you would have opened up the door and allowed him right in without question that there would be no question that he was in any way doing it for malice. Right. So, um, on August 10th of 1964, 24-year-old uh, Dean was drafted in the US, United States Army. He did his basic training at Fort Polk in Louisiana, and then later at Fort Benning, Benning in Georgia, and then back to Texas at Fort Hood. At Fort Hood, he trained as a radio operator B. After 10 months, he applied for hardship grounds, stating that he needed to return to run the family business. He was granted an honorable discharge, and on June 11, 1965, he was discharged. It was during this time in the military that friends said Dean admitted to being a homosexual and had his first homosexual experience while being in the military. I just find that so shocking because... It would have just been so unheard of, you know, being in the army and having those kind of relationships. Right. You know, because it wasn't until much later that you get the don't ask, don't tell. Right. right? Then, I mean, they would have been hazing, I would think. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little shocked by that. So, um, and I think there are a couple other things here that I found interesting too. Again, the hardship ground is to return to help his mother. But that to me wouldn't necessarily be that unusual because she's a divorcee. So she's living on her own. And so I can see how the United States would have said, okay, he's the provider for the family. Mm -hmm. Well, and he was, you know, registered as what with the, with the business, the, the vice president. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, he would have, uh, they would have looked at it mm -hmm. as, as him needing to return. Now, had she been married, that would have been denied. Right. So, because there would have been an adult, but you know, it's very interesting to me too, because in all of the research that I did of this, he does have that brother. And so I kind of wondered why, you know, the, the brother couldn't step into some of these roles, but to me, it just seems like Dean really would have wanted to. Plus with the rheumatoid rheumatic fever, I was surprised that he even actually made it through basic training without mm -hmm. them discharging him for medical reasons. So the next choice would have been a hardship uh, discharge. Mm -hmm. But it just does sound like his mother likes him to be close to her. I think so. You know, I mean, they seem to have a very close bond. Right. Even though he may have the other brother, she may not have felt like she could depend on him. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. That's all speculation, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's a possibility. In 1965, the Coral um candy company was located at west 22nd street in houston heights area the candy shop was located across the street from the helms elementary school where and school would let out the children would rush across the street and dean the candy man was their buddy as he passed out scraps of praline he would invite the kids to come back to his trailer which was located behind the candy store and play pool oh wow so he basically had prime picking for young children right every single day yeah you know when you when you look at this there's so I mean, that's insane so many things that you kind of look at the um sex offender laws that we have today that say that you can't have a sex offender living across the street from a school and you think to yourself oh it was written with with dean in mind you know because he just set up shop there in order to bring these kids in yeah i mean it's very sickening and 
even if they had like the sex offender registry at that time, he wouldn't have been on it. No, he because wouldn't have been. He, right. There was no speculation and no charges for him to even be on it. No. There... So he just had free reign all day long to hang out with these kids. And that's just too much. <laughs> During this time, his mother became very religious, and through her religion, she actually met another uh, individual and married again. It's at the same time that complaints from a male teenage employee are um, about um, Dean making sexual advances to him actually come out to his mother. So the employee comes to his mother and says that Dean had made these sexual advances toward him, and his mother doesn't believe it. So she fires the employee. Well, yeah, she can't believe it. If she is extra religious at this time, she cannot believe that. They, she can't wrap her mind around it. She soon divorces again, and she decides she no longer wants to live in Houston. So she and Joyce, the um, younger sister, pack up, and they move to Manitou Springs, Colorado. Later, people would speculate that the reason for the divorce was that the husband claimed Dean was a homosexual and needed help. Dean never visited in Colorado. She never returned to Houston, although they spoke on the phone quite often. So just the sister moved with her to Colorado? Yes. So, so the other brother and Dean stayed behind. Right. I don't I don't hear any reference to the the brother where he's at or what he was involved in you know and um he's only he's not he's right about the i think they're about it two years apart so he would have been maybe working had his own family at the time something like that but i i don't find anything about him really mm -hmm. so um so you know it's so it seems like she's had so many divorces and she remarries and then divorces and remarries. What, why do you think that there's so many marriages here with her? So you're talking about a woman back then in that time period that would have one felt like her, um, her worth was being a wife and a mother. Um, the fact that she's even really running the candy store and having her own business Everybody probably would have looked at that as a hobby or a side business. I don't think that the candy store would have really supported the family. There would have had to be other income. But um, so I think she's always kind of looking for that fulfillment of being that wife and mother. You know, the the marriages don't work out, but I she's definitely looking to be that. Well, yeah, and it would have been want to be like a spinster, so to speak, either. Well, and she as a divorced woman too, you know, it would have been a little bit looked down upon, you know, it wouldn't have been like, Oh, here's this, you know, great independent woman running a candy shop. It would have been like, Ooh. yeah, she can't keep a husband. Ooh, she can't keep a husband. That's yeah. She's going to have that candy store, you know, keep her kids. No. You know? So, you know, we, we're talking so much about Dean's mother and kind of their relationship and how close they are. Does he have a relationship with his biological father? So he does have a relationship with his father. So um, 
in the area that he's living in, his father was actually uh, remarried and living in that same area. And so he does visit him and uh, talk to him, have a relationship with him. Um, the father and him don't seem to have, it doesn't seem to be quite the pull that's had with, um, that he has with his mother, but he does have a relationship with him. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually his father owned the house that Dean is eventually killed in. Right. And then, you know, I wonder if he speculates or knows that he's a homosexual. I wonder how that would make him feel or if it would put kind of like a wedge in their relationship when he comes out later after dean is killed he basically comes out saying there is no possible way that his mm -hmm. son was one a homosexual but two he basically states that he thinks that this was some sort of like drug party gone bad and that these kids basically set his son up right. um he never never believes the um story even even you know as the kids go on trial he he kind of falls in the background doesn't make a whole lot of statements and stuff but any statement that he ever made was that this was untrue mm -hmm. that his son was a good right boy. he his belief seemed to be that um henley and brooks did this and then are trying to pass it off onto being his son and then his son was just being a good moral character for these boys who didn't have good fathers in their lives right so so i don't know if he suspected but publicly he never states anything about suspecting right So when um, Mary Dean's mother moves to Colorado, she actually promotes Dean to the head of the candy store, the president of the candy store. While Dean's working at the candy factory, he's also attending a training program for electricians. Uh, the candy store would then close in 1968 and he began working for the Houston Light and Power Company. Although he's no longer involved in the, having access to the kids through the candy store he still has access to neighborhood kids while using his trade as an electrician he would befriend the children and then he would um create these electro electronic gadgets and invite all the kids over to see how they worked oh i could see that being like a ruse for certain during this time he also had a, a girlfriend her name was betty hawkins um she was the mother of two young sons. She dated Dean for about five years. She stated that he was the nicest man in the world and that he loved children, including hers. She said that kids were always taking advantage of his generosity, that he had given his TV away several times to them just because they had asked. During this relationship, she said that they never had sex that Dean was a good man and he believed they should wait until he was married. Oh yeah. Surprise. Well, if he's a homosexual, I wouldn't think he'd like women. So I would red flag that too. Right. And, um, the, the giving the TV away and the giving the gifts away, I still, and I don't know, you know, you always look at this and you always think to yourself, you know, Oh, if they only could have known, you know, the grooming behavior that seems to go on that, like with that, with the gifts, because I mean, TV was not a cheap piece of equipment. No, back then. and I mean, I do find it kind of odd that her statement is that the kids were taking advantage of him. 
Right. You know, I mean, that's kind of, to me, that's an odd statement. Like, what is that based on? Just, you know, I mean, like, how are children taking advantage of him? He's the adult. If he didn't want to give them the TV, then he wouldn't. Right. Just you know, any way wants, to find it. Yeah, he wants to, though. Mm -hmm. You know, he wants them to be like, oh, Dean is so great. He gave me a television set because we didn't have one. Now we're besties. Well, and I would think there would be a lot of families that didn't have television sets. I mean, that was an expensive item, you know? Um, so I, I... I mean, you definitely didn't have them in every single room of your house like you do now. Right. You know, you would have one maybe in the living room that everybody shared. So, no, it wasn't an, a cheap item that you were just given away. Be like I have know? an extra TV laying around. <laughs> I mean, in her mind, I think she's can sense that there's something maybe wrong there, but is thinking it's the kids. Right. And, you know, the sad thing about this is when I look at this relationship of her as a mother of two young sons, I just know that the reason that she was he was in a relationship with her was because she was the mother of two young sons yeah you know and sadly that's that's that horrible knowledge to say that and i'm not saying that he did anything to her sons but when you look at this relationship you know where this relationship at least was headed if it hadn't already gone in that direction right i mean definitely because you know they were living together and they get married or whatever and he would have full access to those kids and that's how predators think right so after his mother moved dean spent the next five years moving around quite a bit living in 10 different uh locations in one of dean's apartment the maintenance man was asked to replace a door that had a bullet hole that had bullet holes in it not not just one, but multiple bullet holes in it. Do we know what year that is? Uh, no. So it's just, um, it's an interview that I came across of somebody. It is, it is prior to the house that he's living in. So, yeah. but unfortunately when you have him moving around, you have him moving around relatively quickly in this area. Um, so the bullet holes thing did not seem to raise a red flag to building manage the building manager at the time. Um, I can just imagine that nowadays though. <laughs> so, you know, I mean the, I mean, I lived in apartment complexes for years, right? If I had to call them and say, I have, you need you to replace my door. There's bullet holes in there. You don't think some kind of reports going to be made. Like they would definitely freak out. It just <laughs> I mean, goes, you know, yeah. It just goes to show you about just how different things were thought of back then. I mean, he probably could just be like, oh, I was just horsing around and accidentally shot the door, you know? So that's just insane. And do we know where about, like, maybe his residences were? Like, were they in bad neighborhoods or? No, so all of his residences are actually located right there in the Heights. So he stays, some of them are in the Houston zip code and then some of them are in the Pasadena zip code. But he basically stays within a 15 mile radius mm -hmm. of, of where he's killed. So, and of where the candy shops were. Um, so he's interacting with these same kids that he um, knew from across the street. He's, they're turning into teenagers. Um, so they're, you know, when they're in elementary school, they're six, seven years old. Now they're um, 13 years old. And so he's interacting with those same kids. So he's in those same areas. Um, they all remember him from the, from the candy store. Some of them were employed at the candy store. Right. that he's interacting with 
And so, I mean, I know that he's moved around, sort of stays in the same area. Do we know where his first victim was killed? Uh, we do not. Uh-huh. So, um, Ed, so he picks his first victim up um, in 1970, or what is thought to be his first victim is 1970. Um, that person is hitchhiking. That young gentleman is hitchhiking. And he does pick him up in the van that he owns. So whether or not he was taken back to the apartment and killed there, or if he was killed in the van, we don't really know. Yeah, it does make me kind of curious if that's when the door had to be replaced was because of that incident yeah Yeah. i you know as far as i know i don't can't can't find i mean we don't know because you know he was killed he doesn't have Mm -hmm. those i mean you can't get those details from a dead man right and you know when the police did investigating of these cases um so much of what they were investigating was actually uh henley and brooks so they didn't really go back and investigate deep right you know because he's dead you can't put him on trial but a lot of those answers i think would have come through from a a thorough investigation of here's where he lived here's where this one killed here's where that one's killed and you get some bits of information from the trial of henley and um brooks but you don't get as like when you talk about like the first victim that doesn't come up because it's not brought up in that trial right So Dean's mother said that he had become depressed before he was murdered and he said to her that he was in trouble. She was worried that he was suicidal, but he seemed to snap out of the dark mood when they began to make plans for him to take a trip to visit her in Colorado. Some of what she's saying about the plans for him to visit her in Colorado almost seemed like he was making plans to possibly move to Colorado. Mm. You know, and I don't know if if maybe some of that was a worry and a concern that it was that somebody was going to find out something was going to happen. Somebody was going to find out and maybe he needed to get out of this area. I mean, I mean, it's possible that he just thought, oh, my gosh, how much longer can I keep this up in this area? Right. You know, because even though he's choosing to do this and have these accomplices, it has to weigh on him. Well, and what we also know about that time is that Brooks and Henley are actually having conversations about possibly trying to kill him. Right. And so maybe he's picking up on some of that is that these two, you know, accomplices or, you know, also victims are getting harder and harder for him to control sure because they're getting older right yeah and i mean the older the thing we know about teenagers the older they get the more mouthy they get Mm -hmm. and the more they come into their own and yeah i mean it's possible he might have started fearing them for certain you Mm -hmm. know so after his death a guy named a man named guy came forward and stated that uh, Dean had made a pass at him in a public restroom. Guy was not interested in a relationship, but he and Dean became good friends. He said that Dean was an extremely gen- was extremely gentle to Guy, but that there was a room inside Dean's house that Dean had said to him, I will never take you in there. Guy said it was like there was another part of Dean's life that he was not a part of and that it was taboo. 
Guy stated that Dean believed no one would love him if he was gay. He was also especially worried about his age and growing older. You know, this is always weird to me, too, because when I read that initially in going over the episode, I'm just like, he's like Peter Pan. He's like the man that doesn't want to grow up, right? right? He has that fear, it sounds like a little bit, of being older, right? Mm -hmm. And not being loved. So that's, you know, kind of odd. And then also what's weird about their relationship to me is how do you go from not, you know, like from Dean making a pass on you and not wanting to accept that to being their friend? And, you know, so with Guy's statements and his interviews and stuff, uh, some of what he's stating there almost makes you think, okay, he had a pass, he made a pass at him at that time he wasn't interested, but the relationship kind of grew and headed that way because he uses words like he was very gentle with me. He was always very patient with me and guy is an openly gay man. And so I'm just kind of wondered whether or not he wasn't wanting to admit that he had a relationship with him. Maybe, um, fear of, I mean, one, you know, it's not exactly the person that you want to be like, Oh, guess what? When I was younger, I had a relationship with this mass murderer, but two, you know, he's publicly admitting to some sort like the friendship part of it, maybe not wanting to, admit to that intimacy part of it was a fear of being prosecuted. Right. Or being seen as maybe an accomplice too. Right. right? You know, and then it seems like in his description that they did have some sort of relationship, you know, because when he says he's so gentle with me, even Mm -hmm. if it wasn't physical, there was some sort of emotional connection that the two of them had together. So, you know, he admits to that. He does admit to that. But he denies a relationship. Why do you think, you know, why do you think he's denying the relationship? Two reasons can be one, not wanting to be that close with somebody who was a mass murderer. The second one is if you publicly admit that you were having an intimate relationship and, and could be questioned about that under Texas law at that point in time, it would have been illegal. And so he could have been jailed. And it was illegal because sodomy was illegal. It was illegal because Mm -hmm. sodomy was illegal. So how long, I mean, like, when does it become legal, so to speak, I guess? Oddly enough, 2003. That is shocking. I was. That is so shocking because you just seems like it was more mainstream. But Texas is one of the harder states with laws like that. Right. It went to the Supreme court. So that's that Supreme court. There was a Supreme court decision from a man in Texas who, um, it went to the Supreme court and in 2003, they came back and said, you know, you can't, it just, to me, I guess I've, I didn't realize that it had 2003 was shocking to me. Yeah. You know, no, cause when you originally asked me, I was like, what the eighties? Cause that's when right. you saw more of the club scene and, you know, gay men and, you know, the AIDS epidemic and all that. I mean, there, it was more knowledge about those type of relationships. And there was also a lot of hate crimes too, you know? Right. So when you told me 2003, I'm like, really? That's insane. Because I mean, I had already graduated high school in 2003, but in, you know, the early or the late nineties, early two thousands, I had you know, classmates that were gay, openly gay, Right. you, I never would have thought it was illegal. I just never would have thought it, you know, I mean, not 
initially being gay, but the sodomy part of it. Yeah, I, I was blown away when I actually um, started trying to, you know, delve into that and figure that out because I thought it was probably going to be the 80s too. So I was a little shocked when it was 2003. So I, I would think for many reasons, and one of the other reasons that you mentioned there too is a hate crime. I mean, so, so easy to go after this individual, you know, not only if he's associated with having a relationship with somebody who was a mass murderer, but then feeling like, you know, he's openly homosexual, so he would have been in danger. Oh, sure. I mean, he so. would have been an easy target because, first of all, you have families that are, are now knowing where their missing boys went, mm -hmm. and you have, you know, this guy that's possibly in their minds, maybe, in on it, you know, and he's gay, too. Oh, that's just, like, a disaster waiting yeah. to happen. So, yeah, it's probably self-preservation, right? So I would think it's self-preservation. Mm -hmm. I, I would think the fact that he came out and admitted to the relationship in the way that he did was was dangerous for him that way too mm -hmm. so um not only was he openly gay in that time period but then he's admitting to a friendship or a relationship in some ways and i just yeah so i'm you know i wonder if do you think that guy knew henley and brooks like do you think that he was aware of the their friendship with dean because he wouldn't have known about anything else, right? So let's just say the friendship. So from his interview, it does appear like he knew that there were a lot of teenage boys coming in and out. Um, whether or not he specifically talks about Brooks and Henley, um, no. As far as I know, he didn't. He may have crossed paths with them, but I don't think he knew them um, not in that way. Right. Cause it's not like he ever came out and said, Oh yeah. I remember them being over at the house or. Yeah. XYZ. No, he never came out and said that. Right. So I think that, you know, um, Dean is keeping the relationships, those two relationships a little bit farther apart, but he does recognize that there was, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids coming in and out of there. And I think he's looking at that thinking this is a guy who again did not want to grow any older so you know and it's also interesting just now that I'm, we're kind of discussing this dean has almost like a split personality here so he's out with brooks and henley you know stalking boys and torturing them and killing them and then in the next room he could be you know guys gentle caretaker right you know i mean it's and then of... you know he has a the girlfriend with the two young boys yeah. that he's you know also carrying on a relationship with that time too mm -hmm. i mean he's definitely hiding the two lives and right. you know that right there lets you know that he was in somewhat of a mental state of knowing right from wrong yeah you know so it's shocking well i hope you've enjoyed this episode and gives you a little bit of background information on who dean coral was on our next episodes we'll look at david owen brooks and elmer wayne henley thanks for joining us today we always love to hear from our listeners so please contact us with any questions that you might have um, you can reach us on our facebook page bodies in the bayous you can always email us at bodies in bayous at hotmail.com and don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcast